Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, your host here on Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we sort through the avalanche, the tidal wave, the inundation of headlines regarding the Vatican and the global Catholic Church from the past week. And we go looking to extract those few precious pearls of wisdom that just, you know, make life worth living. Here's what we've got for you this week. First, the Pope in Portugal, late Sunday night, Pope Francis returned to Rome from a grueling five-day trip to Lisbon and Fatima for World Youth Day, that vast throng of pumped-up, high-octane Catholic youth that has sometimes been dubbed the Catholic Woodstock. The only difference is it's not about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's about sacraments, devotion, and Roman Catholicism. Now, last week, I had given you three storylines to watch on this trip. That is the Pope's health, the numbers, and also the way he confronts the legacy of clerical sexual abuse in Portugal. We'll go through each one of those and give you a kind of a rundown of what actually happened. Second, meet the press part one. As normal, the Pope conducted an in-flight news conference on the return flight to Rome, that is Sunday night, Now, it was a very short affair, less than a half hour, all in. But nevertheless, there were still a couple of interesting points. One concerned what the Pope had to say about women priests and gay marriage. Another, his explanation of why he didn't mention either Ukraine or Russia when he went to the famed Marian Shrine of Fatima on Saturday will break down what he had to say. Third, meet the press part two. Because that in-flight press conference was not the only media splash Pope Francis made this week, while he was in Lisbon, his latest bombshell exclusive interview with a media outlet appeared, this one with a Spanish-language platform called Vida Nueva that was celebrating its 65th anniversary. Now, this was a sprawling, wide-ranging, big-time interview, but we're going to focus on three points to come out of it. First, what the Pope had to say about a Vatican III, that is, a third Vatican Council. Second, a candid acknowledgement that he made about his project of Vatican reform. And then third, why the Pope described himself as a stone in the shoe in terms of geopolitics and global diplomacy. And then we're going to end this week with a Cyril-Malabar response. A couple of weeks ago on this program, I made some comments about current tensions within India's Syro-Malabar Church, one of the Eastern churches in communion with Rome, suggesting that they raise questions about the Pope's project of synodality, that is, trying to make the Catholic Church more like a synod. This brought a response from the leadership of the Syro-Malabar Church, basically saying, I'm all wet. (laughs) Now, I will try to explain. What in this response is a kind of matter of interpretation or judgment, but where they actually might have a point. And I will also direct you to the full text of their response, which you can find in the crux site. All of that and more is waiting for you on this edition of Last Week in the Church. So on bended knee and from the bottom of my heart, I beg you, don't go anywhere. Don't click away. Don't change the channel. You're not going to want to miss this stuff. This is a good show, ladies and gentlemen, I promise you, so stay where you are. And it's true confessions time. I'm going to admit to you 
that when it comes to 21st century high technology, I'm not really your guy. I mean, to be honest with you, I think social media is basically a work of the devil, and I'm not entirely kidding about that. I don't have accounts on Instagram or TikTok or LinkedIn or any of these other things that you're supposed to have, and I don't even know what any of those things mean. When it comes to artificial intelligence, I don't really get what the buzz is about, because frankly, whatever intelligence I possess has been artificial for a very long time. However, I like to think that what I lack in tech savvy, I can make up for in judgments about people. And so when people I respect, people I admire, people I trust, tell me that a particular piece of technology is valuable, I listen to them. And that brings us, by a roundabout fashion, to a new technological platform called Magisterium AI that has been launched by our friends at Longbeard. Longbeard is a digital strategy and design company. They are the backbone of the technological dimension of Crux. Basically speaking, everything about how the Crux site operates, everything you see, when you come to the correct site is because of them. Frankly, my show last week in the church is because of them. The CEO of Longbeard, Matthew Sanders, once came to me and said, you know, I think we could do something with a weekly video and podcast. And I was dumb enough to listen to him, and here we are. Now, Longbeard has put out this new tool which harnesses the power of artificial intelligence to the magisterium of the Catholic Church. So you can go on their site and type in, what does the Catholic Church teach on abortion? Or why do we have to go to Mass? Or could you please write a homily for me for the Feast of Christ the King? Whatever. And based upon this tool's exposure to official documents of the Catholic Church, it will spit out a response. And it will also give you citations. So if you want to check to make sure that it's legit, you'll have the tools to do that. It is one of the more creative, useful, hopeful, and I think positive applications of AI technology in the Catholic sphere anyone to date has come up with. So I encourage you to check it out. You can find it online at magisterium.com. Again, that is magisterium.com. Look, like I say, I am not a tech guy, but even I would use this tool, and I promise you, if I'm open to it, if I see some value to it, then that special Luddite in your life will too. Check it out, Magisterium AI. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday in early August 2023. Hope you are well. We begin this week with the Pope in Portugal. So Pope Francis just wrapped up an August 2nd to the 6th visit to Lisbon mostly, but also on Friday or Saturday morning, rather, to the famed Marian Shrine of Fatima. All of this in the context of the latest edition of World Youth Day. This is that massive gathering of Catholic youth from all over the world instituted by St. Pope John Paul II which in many ways has come to be one of the cornerstones of John Paul's legacy. Now, last week on this show, in the run-up to the trip, I had given you three storylines to watch for. 
with regard to this trip. They were, number one, the Pope's health, number two, the numbers that World Youth Day would generate, and number three, the fashion in which Francis would engage recent revelations regarding clerical sexual abuse in Portugal. So now with the benefit of hindsight, let's look back and sort of go through how the Pope handled, how he fared in a sense on those three points. In terms of his health, we got to say, if this was an exam, you would have to say Francis passed with flying colors. Remember that it was just a couple months ago that Pope Francis had to go into Rome's Gemelli Hospital for an operation to repair an abdominal hernia. This was on top of an operation he had had a couple of years ago to remove part of his colon. On top of ongoing struggles with sciatica, that painful nerve condition that makes it difficult for him to stand or to walk very much, problems with arthritis of the knees, you know, he's had surgery for cataracts, and of course, as a young man, he also had part of one lung removed to deal with a respiratory infection, and on and on, and the mere fact that he's 86 years old. So some people had asked, you know, first of all, there was even a question whether he was going to actually make this trip. And secondly, if he did, whether he would be able to sort of bear up under the demands. Well, like, you know, after the fact, we have to say, if the question here was, can Pope Francis still travel? I think the answer has to be a resounding yes. You know, for the most part, the Pope looked remarkably strong, remarkably alert. When he spoke, he did so in a clear and strong voice. And in addition to all the events on his formal schedule, every day we would get notes from the Vatican Press Office about unplanned or at least unannounced private meetings he had had with various individuals. So even in his alleged downtime, he was still on the job. You know, on the whole, you would have to say the Pope did remarkably well. Now, there was a little bit of a frisson along the way, a kind of fuss about papal health, because on Friday, when he visited a charitable center, he had a prepared text that he started to read, and then he set it aside, saying that the light in the room made it difficult for him to read, so he was just going to go off the cuff. Now, that's not unknown, but then for the next two speeches in a row, the Pope also ignored his prepared text and went impromptu. And this raised questions for some people about whether the Pope was struggling with his eyesight. Remember, he has had a surgery for cataracts, so the idea that he might be struggling with his vision was not, you know, it didn't come out of a clear blue sky. I mean, there was some basis for it. Now, at the time, an enterprising and intrepid member of the Vatican Press Corps by the name of Elise Ann Allen, yeah, it's my wife, who was on the papal plane for this trip, she went to the Vatican spokesman, Matteo Bruni, asked him about it. Bruni told Elise, which we quoted on the site, that the Pope was not having any problems with his vision, that the problem at that Friday venue I talked about really had to do with the lighting of the room. And beyond that, the Pope simply had decided for the next couple of speeches that he was not going to read the prepared text and just do his own thing. This question came up again during that in-flight news conference on the way back to Rome, and the Pope sort of reinforced the point, saying, my health is fine, said I just had the stitches out from my operation, I have to wear this compress, this sort of bandage for the next two to three weeks to make sure the wound doesn't reopen. But other than that, 
I am completely fine. As far as his eyesight goes, he reiterated what Bruni had said, which is that the problem really was just in this one venue, the lighting was bad, the reflection in his glasses made it impossible for him to read his text, and that was that. He said the other times he skipped his prepared text, and this is my favorite part, actually. He said the other times he skipped his prepared text, it was simply because, you know, his reading of the room was that he needed to do something shorter and a little bit more spontaneous. And this led him onto a jag about the problem with homilies in the Catholic Church. That, of course, is the reflection the priest gives after the gospel reading at Mass. And Francis said, so often these homilies are torture. And then he said, you know, in small towns, I think he was talking largely about Italy, maybe Argentina, I don't know. But he said, you know, sometimes in small towns during the homily, people will actually go outside for a smoke while the priest is talking and then they will come back in because it's so bad. And, and basically his point was, I'm just trying to, you know, be a good homilist. I'm trying to respond to what is actually in the hearts and minds of the people in front of me rather than getting through something that I worked up at a desk. All right. Bottom line is, look, again, we're talking about an 86-year-old man who has had a series of health challenges. It is not unreasonable to be concerned about what impact the demands of travel are going to have on him. That said, to the extent that this trip to Portugal was an acid test, I think you would have to say he did pretty well. All right, so the second line or the second benchmark I had given you had been numbers. Once again, World Youth Day delivered numbers aplenty. For the youth vigil Saturday night and for the concluding mass Sunday morning, the estimate given by local authorities is that there were about a million and a half people on hand. That, in a, sm in a relatively small country such as Portugal, I mean, that is a massive crowd by anybody's standards. I think it is noteworthy also that the president of Portugal didn't just show up for his own meeting with the Pope. He was at every event on the Pope's itinerary. I mean, if this were an airline, he would have frequent flyer miles for flying Pope air. In other words, the sort of social reaction to the presence of the Pope and to the phenomenon of World Youth Day was pretty massive. And I think, you know, that says something. We live in an era in which we take for granted, especially in the West, right? that secularism means that religion is becoming increasingly irrelevant or increasingly just exclusively a private phenomenon that somebody can believe or not, whatever, that's up to them, but it doesn't really have anything to do with public life, right? Well, I mean, anytime you can stroll into town and generate not once but twice crowds that are, you know, getting close to two million people, you know, you can call that anything you want, but irrelevant is clearly not the right word. John Paul, I think, conceived World Youth Day in part as a way of making clear that Catholicism still had some gas left in the tank in terms of its social capital, even in the secular West. I think this event certainly put an exclamation point on that. Then third, there, of course, was the question of sexual abuse. I mean, Portugal in February just had a, a commission an independent commission that released a report on the history of clerical sexual abuse in the country, which found that somewhere around 5,000 people had been 
abused by Catholic personnel, mostly priests, since 1950. And that probably is just the tip of the iceberg because that tally reflects only those who have come forward to lodge complaints. Presumably, there are many more who have made the choice not to do that. And there had been controversy about the church's response to these revelations because the Patriarch of Lisbon, Cardinal Manuele Clemente, had said publicly that the church was not necessarily going to remove accused abusers from ministry and was also not necessarily going to pay reparations to victims unless it was ordered to do so by a court. Neither one of those points really, you know, captured a lot of hearts and minds. Now, Pope Francis, while he was in Portugal, he did not engage those two controverted questions. He did, however, hold a meeting in the place where he was staying, the, the residence of the papal ambassador in Portugal, with 13 victims. And on, on the plane on the way home, he said that meeting had helped him very much to understand the nature of this problem. And then he said two things, kind of uttered two sound bites, I think, that certainly resonated in Portugal. One, he said, he called clerical sexual abuse a tremendous plague, tremendous plague, hardly, right, the rhetoric of a denier on the crisis. And then secondly, he said, we need zero tolerance. Now, we can have a debate about whether the policies of the Catholic Church and of the Vatican so far truly amount to zero tolerance or not, especially when it comes not just to the crime of, the sexu of sexual abuse, but the cover-up of that crime. That is, whether bishops and superiors have adequately handled allegations of sexual abuse against personnel under their authority. That's a reasonable conversation. What cannot be disputed, however, is that in the Pope Francis era, zero tolerance has become the yardstick by which the church's response has to be measured. The Pope, over and over again, has publicly committed himself to that, and he did it again on this trip in Portugal. All right, next up this week, Meet the Press Part 1. So, as I mentioned, the Pope, as he always does, conducted a news conference with the roughly 60 or 70 reporters who fly on the papal plane on the way back from Lisbon to Rome. Now, as somebody who has been in this situation many times personally, I mean, I've been on the papal flight a lot, I will tell you this. It is in many ways a dismal experience. First of all, you pay business class airfare for worse than coach accommodations. The seats are awful and you are cramped. The food is terrible, and it's usually cold by the time it gets to you. Sometimes on these flights, they don't have any booze even, which is impossible for me to understand. But nevertheless, I will say this. As bad as it is, in the Pope Francis era, the in-flight entertainment is spectacular because it is always a kind of evening at the improv experience with the pontiff. So this time, in addition to the comments about his health and sex abuse I've already quoted, there were two other points of interest. One, towards the end, he was asked a question about something he had said in Portugal. In Portugal, he had said the church is open to everybody. Well, a reporter said, okay, you can say that, but in the Catholic Church, there are certain sacraments that are not open to everybody. And this reporter mentioned women. That's an obvious reference to the ban on women priests. And also mentioned the LGBTQ plus community, you know, an obvious reference to the ban on gay marriage. And the Pope's response here was interesting. Basically what the Pope said is, look, there is a difference between the church and itself 
and then the legislation that governs the internal life of the church. So that legislation is one thing. But whatever the legislation is, it doesn't mean the church is closed. He said the church is for everybody. Everybody is welcome. And he said it is a mistake to try to reduce the church to its rules. He actually said that's a form of Gnosticism, which is an ancient heresy in the church. Anyway, point is, he was making a clear distinction between the kind of legislation that governs the church, but then its inner pastoral reality, right? And I think analytically, what that does is that it places Pope Francis squarely in what we might call the center-left camp in terms of Catholic politics. Very briefly, if we're going to do a kind of political x-ray of the Catholic Church, I would say there is a right wing that says not only are these teachings, for example, on women, priests, and gay marriage, not only are they correct and we need to defend them, but we actually need to enforce them more vigorously. So if there is a theologian arguing for women priests, that person should have their mandate yanked. If there's a pastor blessing gay marriages, that person should be removed from ministry. Now, on the left, there are people clamoring for changes in teaching on both of these points who were saying, you know, let's start with women deacons, for instance, and maybe work our way up to women priests. Or let's start with blessing same-sex unions and maybe work our way up to acknowledging gay marriage. Now, in the middle, what you have is a central right that says, well, you know, look, we don't need a witch hunt. We don't need to go looking for conflict, but we do need to defend and explain these teachings clearly. Then there's a center left that says, you know, we, what we really don't need to do is talk a whole lot about these teachings. People know what they are, but we don't need to constantly go around repeating them. And in the meantime, we should put the emphasis on pastoral outreach rather than moral judgment, right? Now, that taxonomy has existed for a long time, and what Pope Francis's answer reflects is that he is basically pretty squarely, pretty forthrightly in that center-left camp. He's not pressing on these hot-button issues for changes in doctrine or law, simply a more pastoral approach to living all of that. Bottom line is he's not quite the radical that he has been made out to be in some quarters. Put it differently, there is certainly Catholic opinion well to the left of where Pope Francis stands. Now, all right, the other point that was interesting, when Pope Francis went to Fatima on Saturday, Lots of people were expecting him to talk about the war in Ukraine and Russia's aggression because, of course, Fatima in the 20th century was associated, well, it was kind of the premier Catholic Cold War devotion, right? I mean, it's where the prayer for the conversion of Russia came from, the request by Our Lady to consecrate Russia. And basically, if you were a Catholic hawk, during the Cold War, Fatima was your preferred devotion, right? And so there had been some expectation that the Pope would raise that when he was there. Instead, in his reflections, he didn't say anything specifically about Ukraine or Russia. He actually skipped a prepared prayer for peace that he was supposed to pronounce there and preferred to do it just kind of quietly and in private. So he was asked about that in this airborne press conference. And what he said was very interesting. He said, look, I did pray for peace while I was in Fatima, but I did it in my heart. I didn't want to make what he called publicity. And then he said that again, said, I'm not interested in publicity. And I think that the clear analytical takeaway from that is that Pope Francis is giving us an interpretive key 
to the kind of diplomatic and political line he has taken on the war in Ukraine from the very beginning. As is well known, he has avoided clear public condemnations of either Russia or Vladimir Putin. He has tried for the most part to remain even-handed, this in a hope that it will buy the Vatican the opportunity to play a mediator role. Maybe right now on the humanitarian front, such as you know, helping broker a deal to get those children who were removed from eastern Ukraine returned to their families, maybe brokering a deal to get Russia to come back to the grain deal it walked out of in July, and maybe somewhere down the line, brokering a more comprehensive peace. In other words, what Pope Francis was saying is, there is a difference between what is in my heart and mind, and on this front at least, what I am going to say out loud. Now, some people will style that as great diplomatic prudence. Some people will see it as a failure of nerve, analogous to Pope Pius XII failing to clearly condemn Hitler and Nazism during the Second World War. But whatever you make of it, I think Pope Francis has now pretty much told us what his game plan here is. All right, next up this week, we have Meet the Press Part Two, as I mentioned. The Pope gave an exclusive interview to a Spanish language outlet called Vida Nueva, and that interview broke during the time that he was in Lisbon. Now you can go on the Vida Nueva site, you can find the full thing. It is big, it is vast, it contains multitudes. But three points I want to single out for you. Number one, he was asked, does he think the time is ripe for a third Vatican Council, a Vatican III? basically another ecumenical council like Vatican II in the mid-1960s. His basic answer to that was no. The time is not right. And he said this is in part because Vatican II still has not been implemented. And then he proceeded in characteristic fashion for Pope Francis to kind of take a shot at the more sort of traditionalist quarters of Vatican opinion, of Catholic opinion that tend to take a kind of ambivalent view about Vatican II. He said, today you have these movements that have a kind of restorationist air. He said, and you know, they apparently have a lot of mystique about them, but he said there's also a lot of corruption. Okay, I mean, clearly not a flattering portrayal. Basically, the bottom line is Pope Francis once again indicated that the kind of Rosetta Stone of his papacy is the implementation of Vatican II seen from that center-left perspective that we talked about earlier. All right. Next up, he was asked about his project of Vatican reform. And the Pope was quite candid here. And basically what he said is, look, it's not necessarily that I have a comprehensive strategy. Ideas come to me. My first instinct is to say no, but then I think about whether it's possible, and then I decide whether I can go forward. And he candidly acknowledged that he can't do everything he wants. So look, you have to ask yourself, how far beyond the limits can you actually go? And the limits are those imposed by history and by resources and by public opinion in the church and just by reality. He said that not just him, but any pope faces a certain impotence in this regard. You can't just do anything you want because you have to take account of, you know, what the reality is. And then he gave an example. He said, for instance, I have not yet dared to get rid of the culture of a royal court in the Vatican. Now, that raises the very interesting question, 
and nobody asked this follow-up, but the obvious question is, what does he mean by getting rid of a culture of a royal court in the Vatican? You know, I don't know. He didn't say. I will say this. Anytime you have a figure at the top of a system, whether it's a church or a government or a company, there is always going to be courtiers, right? People who seek to ingratiate themselves with that powerful figure in order to gain favors for themselves. I mean, in a way, if you wanted to get rid of royal court in the Vatican, you'd almost have to get rid of the Vatican itself. So I would love to have that conversation with the Pope someday about what he means. Maybe we'll get that shut. And then the final point from this interview, the Pope said that he knows he is a stone in the shoe for many. And what he meant by that was this came in the context of his critique of empires and of imperialism, especially in Latin America. He did not mention the United States or Europe, but it was pretty clear that's what he had in mind. This was another reminder that when it comes to the Pope ad extra, that is engaging the outside world, that's where he is truly a revolutionary. His center-left positions on internal Catholic debates, they're controversial, but they're not new. However, his break with the idea of the Vatican as a Western institution, turning it into something more like a truly global entity that is just as distant from the Western powers as it is from, say, China, Russia, or the Third World, that is truly innovative. And his comment in this interview is another reminder. All right. Finally this week, the Cyril Malabar response. So two weeks ago on this show, the July 25th episode, I discussed current tensions in the Cyril Malabar church, which involve liturgy, how the mass ought to be celebrated. They also involve money and some controversial land deals that Cardinal George Allen Sherry, the head of the church, made a few years ago that continue to have echoes. Also, the question of the political line of the leadership of the Cyril Malabar church and why critics say it has been a little bit too friendly to the right-wing Hindu nationalist government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi at a time when that government is blamed for sort of turning a blind eye to the persecution of religious minorities, including Christians. All right. What I said brought a detailed response from Archbishop Joseph Pamplini, who was the head, Cyril Malabar Bishop, head of their media commission, that response has been published on the Crux site, and I recommend that you read it. A lot of it is kind of what you would expect official them to say, kind of defending the decisions that the bishops have made. And, you know, reasonable people can disagree about all that. However, there is one point Pamplini made, which I do want to acknowledge here, which is he pointed out that in a lot of Crux coverage of the Cyril Malabar Church, we have quoted a Cyril Malabar priest, very well known guy by the name of Father Paul Thelicott. He's a former spokesman for the Cyril Malabar Church who now is sort of sympathetic to the dissidents in the church. And we've quoted him a lot to provide a counterweight to the kind of decrees and statements that officialdom has put out. What we did not do, and this was a failure on our part, is note that Thelicott is currently facing a criminal charge in India, police charge, that he was involved in a conspiracy to forge documents to defame Cardinal Allen Sherry. Now, he has denied those charges, and the dissidents all say these are cooked up charges just intended to muzzle him. That's something for the court to decide, but this is information we should have given you 
because our job is to give you the tools you need to assess, to make decisions for yourself, including knowing who our sources are. For that, I apologize. You can also find my apology on the correct site. All right. That is our show for this week. As ever, you can find full coverage of all of these stories on the Crux site. Again, that is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. We will be back here next week, same bat time, same bat channel, to bring you the latest and greatest in Vatican and global Catholic news. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, beat the heat, because it is August, and we will talk to you again very soon.